European ethnicities cross the Atlantic, magically, they're transmuted into this new identity politics, which is white, which helps to bolster the forces that are seeking to seize the land of the Native Americans and enslave the Africans. You need great numbers for that kind of cruel enterprise. President Trump made the decision to terminate DACA, and so it's up to him to fix it. We are tired of being used as bargaining chips by both parties. We are human beings. We are Americans. And we deserve relief, but not at the cost of our families. We have been in negotiations for a new bargaining agreement for over a year now. And the hospital is clearly trying to gut it, gut the contract and give us no negotiation. They're trying to force the union out and they try and all different tactics they can. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And today we spend the hour with historian, author, and activist Gerald Horn and his new critically praised book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. In this, his new book, Horn continues his deep research, groundbreaking reinterpretations, and the telling of a new story about the birth of the United States and what we know of as the modern world. It is a tour de force book and a cinematic one, and it's a real treat, and I know you'll enjoy that discussion. So all that is coming up and more today, but first our headlines. Now, members of the clergy, activists, and grassroots communities marched to Capitol Hill here on Monday and to state capitals around the country to launch the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival. Spearheaded by the Reverend William Barber and repairs of the breach, this national campaign plans to confront elected officials and engage in acts of peaceful civil disobedience to highlight the human impact of policies that promote systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, and ecological devastation. The campaign will culminate in a gathering here in D.C. in May, marking the 50th anniversary of the Reverend Martin Luther King's final work, the original Poor People's Campaign, which brought together a coalition of groups to begin a revolution of values in America. The Reverend Amanda Poppy of the Washington Ethical Society was one of the speakers at the press conference outside the Capitol. As of 2016, there are 40.6 million people living below the federal poverty line. Nearly three-quarters of people living below the poverty line are women and children. Four million families with children are being exposed to high levels of lead. 13.8 million low-income households cannot afford water. They cannot afford water. That number could triple if water prices continue to rise. And I don't know if you've looked at your water bill recently. 
This is true in my own city here in D.C. We are a beautiful city. We are sometimes warmer than this with a rich history and with one of the highest gaps in wealth anywhere. And that gap is getting bigger. The rich are getting richer and the poor in D.C. and across the country are getting poorer. After the press conference, the group led by co-chair of the campaign, the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, tried unsuccessfully to deliver letters to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Leader Paul Ryan. Then the group sang inside the rotunda of the Capitol before being ordered by Capitol Hill police to disperse or be arrested. They announced that their next action in D.C. will be a mass meeting February 19th at Shiloh Baptist Church in Northwest D.C., The group also plans to converge in Selma, Alabama in March for the annual Jubilee, then in Memphis in April for the 50th anniversary of King's assassination in that city, and then return to D.C. in May. The campaign maintains an online presence at poorpeoplescampaign.org. We'll have more from the launch later in the show. Now, speaking of the economics of families, dozens who prepare meals and care for patients at George Washington University Hospital will stage a walkout and rally this Wednesday, February 14th at noon to draw attention to what they say is wage theft and the attempt by the hospital to bust their union. Calvin Christian, a cook in the dietary department at the hospital, said that George Washington University Hospital had recently hired a union-busting law firm, stopped deducting union dues from the workers' paychecks, and owes workers at least $80,000 in unpaid wages. They was never going by the contract. They was just letting people work all these times at the same amount of the same pay rate for years and years and years until somebody finally says something. Some of the members are very shaken up by management. So management put these thoughts in their heads and get them to the point if they fight for their money, they can lose their job, which makes no sense. Some of the people that's been here for so long that are fearful of these managers, and you shouldn't be fearful of the people that you work with. The workers at George Washington University Hospital invite the public to join them at their Rally for Justice Wednesday, February 14th, noon, at the hospital, located at 923rd Street in Northwest D.C., right at the entrance to the Foggy Bottom Metro Station. Also this week, the D.C. City Council unanimously passed the Fair Elections Act of 2017. The measure creates public financing for candidates running for public office, candidates who don't receive contributions from corporations and other lobbyists, and who collect small-dollar donations from district residents who receive a 5-to-1 match of the small donations. Supporters of the act say that it will help level the playing field for candidates who are not wealthy or who do not have access to wealthy donors, as well as lessen the influence of corporations and land developers on D.C. elections. Citing the $5 million cost, Mayor Muriel Bowser said she will not fund the program, which is set to start in the 2020 election cycle. The D.C. Fair Elections Coalition, which consists of more than 70 organizations, including community groups, advocates, political groups, and advisory neighborhood commissions, said that it will deliver petitions endorsing the legislation. 
In climate news, the annual energy outlook from the U.S. Energy Information Administration predicts that absent aggressive policy intervention, the country's greenhouse gas emissions will rise in the coming decades. This scenario would all but guarantee catastrophic climate change events. In response, Food and Water Watch Executive Director Winona Howder said that, quote, This report has one clear message. We must move quickly to transition away from fossil fuels, Policy choices can be made right now to fend off climate disaster, but it will require bold, aggressive plans like the All Fossil Fuels for a Better Future Act, which calls for 100% clean energy by the year 2035, with an 80% transition in the next 10 years. End quote. In culture and media, the social justice organization BYP100 is holding a release party on February 10th, 7 p.m., for the third issue of Melanation, their zine, small booklet, and online space where they explore what liberation could look like in African-American communities. And that will be February 10th, 7 p.m. at Phantom Comics, 2010 P Street in Northwest D.C. Poet Nikki Giovanni is reading from her new book, February 10th at the 5th and K Bus Boys and Poets. And the highly anticipated release of Marvel Comics, The Black Panther, is next weekend. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, Gerald Horn on the apocalypse of settler colonialism. Stay with us. Who's been illegal ever since they landed? Who moved out the natives and left them stranded? Who stole Africans from across the Atlantic? Who auctioned, branded, and labeled a savage? Who wanted to expand in the Mexican land and pulled guns and grabbed it? It wasn't democratic. What would they owe if we added the damage? Now they say that you're illegal just because you speak Spanish. When you landed on Plymouth Rock, did you have your papers? When you was dying from sickness caught, did you ask for favors? When all you could grow was stricken crops, did you ask your neighbors? Did they teach you how to survive? Make sure you had the basics, but not glad the gracious. What you had was hatred. Wanted they land to take it, cause you planned to rape it. Thankless, would you call a man a racist who would give women and children smallpox and blankets? Then make it like someone else is illegal with a nation of 40 million stolen people. And won't apologize for what you know is evil. If you mention immigrants, then you vote for equal. But all of a sudden, if you Mexican, you worse than the others. And it don't matter, they were said when it first was discovered. Now that's more disrespectful than cursing your mother, the land of the free. Unless you a person of color, America. Who's been illegal ever since they landed? Who moved out the natives and left them stranded? Who stole Africans from across the Though slow to the colonial banquet that was enslavement, England was not altogether unfamiliar with this phenomenon. Dublin was Europe's largest slave market during the 11th century. Scotland, for example, was filled with English slaves. This was an aspect of the larger point. At the height of its power, the Roman Empire, which once controlled England, trafficked in hundreds of thousands of slaves annually. In the previous millennium, slavery and the slave trade were rampant a praxis in which the Vikings and Scandinavians excelled, often preying on the English and other Europeans. When the Islamic world boomed in the 8th century, there was a sharp rise in the demand for slaves. During that era, 
more than a millennium past, one trader alone boasted of selling more than 12,000 enslaved Africans in Persian markets. Yet this slavery, as hard as it was, did not reach the dimensions of the racial slavery that took off in the 17th century. So begins Gerald Horne's critically praised new book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean, which historians are calling meticulous and a fresh interpretation of the 17th century. As our listeners know, Gerald Horne is a frequent contributor to On the Ground. He is the John J. and Rebecca Morris Professor of African American History at the University of Houston, a prolific scholar. He has published more than three dozen books, and he's joining me now. Well, congratulations on the new book, Gerald. It immediately strikes me as further underpinning the research you've done in previous books we've discussed, including your totally different take on the founding of the United States and the counter-revolution of 1776, slave resistance, and the origins of the United States. So in this new book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, you write about the 17th century, the 1600s, and you write about the three horsemen of the apocalypse, slavery, white supremacy, and capitalism. So can you start with how these three horsemen started riding then, or how this apocalypse was born in that century? Well, first of all, a bit of background context, something our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with, is the journey across the Atlantic, uh, sponsored by the Spanish of one Christopher Columbus, which in many ways inaugurated a new kind of slave trade, speaking of the trafficking in indigenous peoples whose DNA can be found now scattered all over planet Earth. But as is well known, at a certain point, the indigenous slavery was supplanted by African slavery for various reasons, even though 1619 is oftentimes given as the date when Africans came into what is now Virginia, manacles. In fact, you had uh, enslaved Africans in North America, particularly Florida, in the 1500s. But in any case, it is fair to say that slavery takes off in the 1600s. And my story talks about the role of London, the role of England, and what becomes Great Britain in this horrible process. That is to say that at the beginning of the 1600s, in many ways, England was a failed state. By the end of the 1600s, England was well on its way to becoming the world's primary power, a position it did not relinquish until after 1945, when after being battered from pillar to post by both Tokyo and Berlin, it allowed the United States of America, its revolting spawn, to basically take over the pole position in terms of global capitalism. So as I tell the story, what helps to explain England's rise in the 1600s it's precisely slavery. Uh, to telescope uh, quite a bit of detail, the turning point, as I posit it, takes place in 1655, when the English oust the Spanish from Jamaica, and this opens up more territory for settlement, and also happens to coincide with the so-called sugar boom. Uh, that is to say, the production of sugar through the labor of enslaved Africans, creates great wealth pouring into the coffers of London, which in turn helps it to build a bigger and stronger navy, which by 1664 allows London to oust the Dutch 
from not only Manhattan, but also what are a goodly number of what are now the mid-Atlantic states of the United States of America. By 1672, the slave trade, the trade in enslaved Africans, is systematized through the creation of the Royal African Company under the thumb of the monarch in London, which creates even greater wealth. By 1683, there is a setback for one of London's potential rivals. I'm speaking of the Ottoman Turks, who are stopped at the gates of Vienna in 1683, uh, helping to halt what seemed to be the inexorable march forward by the Muslims, then leading to a period of decline for Ottoman Turkey that perhaps does not end until 1918 when Turkey is defeated in World War I and, of course, is rising again. And then by 1688, you have the real turning point, which is the so-called Glorious Revolution, which under the guise of clipping the wings of the monarch, the merchant class, which is then rising, also forces a deregulation of the trade in enslaved Africans, allowing merchants to enter this lucrative business they begin to sail to Africa in great numbers, manacling and handcuffing every African in sight, dragging them across the Atlantic, particularly to the so-called Sugar Islands, Jamaica and Barbados, creating even greater wealth. And in some ways, this is where this particular book ends, which is then picked up by the book you mentioned in the introduction, The Counter-Revolution of 1776. What we're dealing with right now, as we talk about what is a more commonly used term now, white supremacy, I actually heard one neo-Nazi leader basically say that, well, you know, all people have enslaved other people. It's just that white people did it better. And in a sense of, <laughs> yeah, basically saying that, you know, um, when we talk about this history, you're not talking about anything that other people didn't do. It, it kind of like reinforces the idea of white supremacy. I'm almost starting to not like the term, because it basically it's saying something that is not true, you know, that white people are somehow supreme or better. And so I wonder if some people hearing this history say that, well, you know, that just shows that, that England was playing the game better, that England was showing its superiority by being better at playing the capitalist or the, the developer of the modern world. Well, to quote the last sentence that opened this particular interview, yet this slavery, speaking of previous forms of slavery, as hard as it was, did not reach the dimensions of the racial slavery that took off in the 17th century. That is to say that as the subtitle of this book suggests, the slavery that took off in the 17th century was a different species, if you like, than previous forms of slavery, and slavery, after all, was just another socioeconomic formation, not unlike feudalism or capitalism or socialism. But the slavery that took off in the 17th century was a demented mutation of slavery insofar as it was infused with white supremacy. That is to say, it was a racial slavery, and for those who are cackling about white supremacy, uh, keep in mind that, as some of my other work has suggested, in the 21st century, it's apparent that China is in the passing lane and that this is helping to ignite a general crisis for white supremacy. And it seems that the world is returning to the point 
before the rise of the African slave trade when the leading powers on planet Earth were China and India. And I would urge and encourage those white supremacists who you have been talking with to engage that point. I actually wasn't talking with them. I was listening to an interview. I think it probably was that really infuriating interview that Charles Barkley did with Richard Spencer on TV. And I was just like, gosh, why couldn't you be more prepared? You know, you need Gerald Horn in there to come back at you. You know, I guess when we talk about that, though, when we talk about the nature of the slavery, we could kind of drill down a little bit more as you do in this book. And, you know, a lot of people, we feel that they, they know this history, they think it's familiar, but you really uncover a lot more detail and through deep research about, about what that means to say that the nature of the slavery was different. Well, it's not only that the nature of the enslavement process was different insofar as there was a virtual equivalence between African and being enslaved. And I would go a step further to suggest that you cannot begin to understand what is unfolding in what is now the United States in 2018 without a deeper understanding of slavery. In fact, that's one of the weaknesses of some of our friends on the left is that uh, they do not have this kind of understanding, and so therefore they do not understand the rise of Donald J. Trump. They do not understand uh, why nine out of ten black voters uh, voted against Donald Trump, and the fact that Mr. Trump's voters were almost all defined as, quote, white, unquote, is seen as kind of happenstance or an accident and not the inevitable result of developments that began to unfold in the 1600s. In fact, in the book, I zero in on an event in 1676, which in some ways helps to foretell November 2016 when Donald J. Trump was elected. I'm speaking of neighboring Virginia and Bacon's rebellion when a man of European descent who was not part of the poor and dispossessed that he purported to represent led a revolt against the colonial authorities in Virginia because he thought that these authorities were not moving with sufficient energy to dispossess the Native Americans so that more enslaved Africans could be brought across the Atlantic to work the tobacco fields of Virginia. Uh, he was defeated, but in some ways, his project was not defeated because in succeeding decades, what you did find was that settlers, European settlers, engaged in a kind of class collaboration between the poor and the richer against the interests of Native Americans and, of course, against the interests of Africans. And I dare say that in November 2016, you had a replay of Bacon's Rebellion in some senses, where you had this class collaboration between poor and richer Europeans, not only against the interests of those in North America, but arguably against the interests of the entire planet. And no matter how much spinning and torturing of the numbers can be done with regard to analyzing the Trump base, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that Trump's voters were not all part of the 1%. <laughs> that this was a multi-class coalition 
and you cannot begin to understand that kind of multi-class coalition without understanding settler colonialism and without understanding how there were certain Europeans who were able to live the so-called American dream by profiting at the expense of the rest of us. Okay, we're going to talk a little bit more about that history and that legacy of white settler colonialism when we come back after this break. Stay with us. just tuning in. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Gerald Horn about his new book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean, which is hot off the press and historians are calling it meticulous and a fresh interpretation of the 17th century. Well, Jared, when we left off, we were talking about the rise of India and China in the 21st century as sort of an anecdote to what has been the rise of white supremacy, slavery, colonialism, neo-colonialism around the world in the previous centuries. But I'm also thinking that when you look at the response, uh, there seems to be domestically here, the responses to either incarcerate you know, kill with impunity through state violence or to deport black and brown bodies and then internationally to uh, adopt this more aggressive military posture, military buildup to kill, to make war on and invade countries, uh, people of color around the world. This tremendous buildup in the Pacific, for example, or the attacks on Africa, uh, Libya, which has decimated so much of the rest of the continent and also Yemen. So there's that international piece and then there's the domestic piece. Well, one of the unfortunate exemplars of what you've just described is the tragically named Angola State Prison and the state of Louisiana, disproportionately comprised of men of African descent, a significant percentage of whom it could be revealed easily are of Angolan descent, and it's not accidental that that prison is named after that Southwest African country, Angola, 
which supplied a significant percentage of enslaved Africans to North America. And given the fact that Angola has a well-documented history of military warfare going back to the arrival of the Portuguese colonialists uh, almost 500 years ago, lasting up until the late 20th century with the final defeat of Washington's favorite, Jonas Zavimbi and his UNITA terrorist bandits, it's quite ironic that Angola State Prison is an exemplar of the prison industrial complex today, although, quite frankly, as I've just tried to suggest, in order to understand that phenomenon, you have to understand the roots of slavery, you have to understand the roots of white supremacy in order to understand not only the prison industrial complex, but this phenomenon of Donald J. Trump, who some of our liberal friends would like us to believe is an anomaly and an aberration and not the inevitable working out of the contradictions of the history of settler colonialism in North America. You also uh, describe in this really fascinating way how this period, the 17th century, was also rife with turmoil in Europe and how the period of anti-monarchism, you know, like overthrowing kings, was really linked to this idea of this growing republicanism and free trade and how those things became very interlinked and then how free trade in turn was linked to the trade in enslaved African bodies. So you have this development of capitalism or the fast development of capitalism with the idea of free trade or or freedom, not being under the thumb of a king or queen, but having the freedom to develop your own trade and the trade in black bodies. Well, that's an accurate summary. And let me also say that I should point out that this is a work that's based both on primary research, that is to say research in original documents in London and Jamaica and Barbados in particular, Uh, but also relying upon the work of other scholars. And in that regard, pursuant to your latter point, I would point to the book published by the University of North Carolina Press by the British scholar William Pettigrew entitled Freedom's Debt, where he suggests that the clipping of the wings of the monarch, which has turned today's Queen Elizabeth into something of a figurehead, That is to say that that particular historical process stretches back to 1688 and the so-called Glorious Revolution when the rising merchant class were trying to elbow their way in to the lucrative nature that was the African slave trade. And that plants the seeds of so-called republicanism and helps to erode the idea of the divine right of monarchs. And in turn, that helps to plant the seeds of free trade, that is to say, free trade in Africans in particular, and not necessarily having the trade in Africans dominated by the monarch, which had generated so much wealth for the monarch. But also in order to understand these developments leading up to 1688, you also have to understand what was going on in Europe as well. That is to say that concluding approximately 1648 was the so-called Thirty Years' War, where the Europeans were fighting each other in some of the bloodiest conflicts that have been known to humanity to this point. But if there was an upside to this for Europeans, and of course it turned out to be a downside for Africans and the indigenous population, is that methods of warfare, and particularly developments of 
weaponry and development of battleships are perfected or at least honed during this period of inter-European warfare and conflict, and then after the Thirty Years' War is settled, these Europeans, particularly the English and the French, are able to turn that particular methodology of warfare on the Africans and on the indigenous population. And through the province of the African slave trade, they're then able to plant the seeds for capitalism itself because in order to enslave Africans, you needed to build ships for the Middle Passage to drag the Africans across the Atlantic. You had to have insurance because the Africans had a tendency to revolt, and that leads to development of insurance companies. And it also leads to the development of banking because the merchants oftentimes had to take out loans for these lucrative voyages. And by the way, uh, sometimes these voyages were so profitable that they boggled the imagination. That is to say, you could invest $1 and get back $1,700. And I dare say that there are those today who would sell their firstborn for a 1,700% profit not to mention taking the firstborn of some poor African in West Africa and transporting that person across the Atlantic. So therein you begin to see the essence of the current dilemma in North America where you have a country built up on decades, if not centuries, of horror, but yet many of our historians, including some historians who call themselves progressive, instead give us this fairy tale about people uh, seeking liberty and equality and therefore uh, for a people without a land, there's a land without a people, believe it or not, referring to North America. And therein you begin to have this heroic story of the rise of the so-called United States of America. I'm also really fascinated about how in the book you describe how money becomes in this period the new religion. It's not only a time of kind of shaking off the monarchies, but also an era of decreased power of the churches. And so in that breakdown, then in the ascendancy of capitalism, money becomes the new religion. So talk about that a little bit. Well, first, first of all, you, you mentioned uh, what you refer to as the breakdown of religion. And this is an important part of the story. Uh, I think Ultimately and eventually, historians will not see it as accidental that you have the rise of the Protestant faith in the preceding century, in 1517. Of course, you have the rise of Martin Luther, who is protesting against what he sees as the excesses of Christianity, meaning the Roman Catholic Church, and therefore that leads to the rise of the Protestant faith, which then gets a foothold in London for reasons that need not detain us here, and that helps to inaugurate uh, decades of religious conflict, particularly between what were known as the Catholic powers, principally uh, Spain and France, and the po Protestant power, which was England, then Great Britain. Uh, what, what's striking, if I can bring the Africans back into the story, is that with the inauguration and the acceleration of the slave trade in the 1600s, you oftentimes found the Africans under the Union Jack, that is to say the Africans under London's rule, making alliances with the Catholic powers. In fact, that's the essence of Stono's revolt in South Carolina in 1739, which is a central part of my 1776 book. That is to say the Angolans in South Carolina 
are making a deal with the Spanish who then occupied Florida in order to overthrow the English in South Carolina or the British in South Carolina. And then after the formation of the United States of America post-1776, you see the Africans with a kind of nimbleness then switch to backing the British against the settlers who were the major slaveholders. With regard to the point about uh, money, uh, obviously the rise of the merchant class helps to give them a kind of power that for a while allows them to be in a kind of alliance with the religious authorities, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, which after all was a major vector of both colonialism and the slave trade. But fast forwarding to 2018, you find this very intriguing example of how many religious authorities, particularly the so-called Christian evangelicals, who see their, their power waning, uh, who have cut a deal with white supremacy and has let, that has led them to, in turn, cut a deal with Donald J. Trump to overlook his many moral transgressions, including paying tens of thousands of dollars, allegedly, to a porn star who he had a, an affair with. Uh, one Christian evangelical said that Mr. Trump deserves a mulligan, that is to say a do-over in, in golf terms. And it's a, a very uh, sorry eventuation of once mighty religious powers and authorities who in 2018 have been reduced to the status of cutting deals with morally challenged billionaire, allegedly, presidents. Wow. Well, that's certainly bringing the past to the present again. I'm speaking to Gerald Horn about his new book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism. And we're going to take another break and we'll be right back. Ain't nobody praying for me. Nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying for me. Shoulders. I feel like I'm losing my focus. I feel like I'm losing my patience. I feel like my thoughts in the basement feel like I feel like you're miseducated. Feel like I don't wanna be bothered. I feel like you may be the problem. I feel like it ain't no tomorrow. F the world, the world is ending. I'm done pretending. If f you, if you get offended, I feel like friends been overrated. I feel like the family been faking. I feel like the feelings are changing. Feel like my daughter compromises jaded. Feel like you wanna screw with nice, I made it. Feel like I ain't feeling you all. Feel like removing myself, no feelings involved. I feel for you. I've been in the field for you, it's real for you, right? Shit, I feel like ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying.
If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm in conversation with Gerald Horn about his new book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Picking up from where we just left off, we were talking about money as the new god as the capitalism developed, but how about the idea of whiteness and how this also had its germination during this time, the 1600s? Well, you know, it's quite striking uh, to start with 2018 that oftentimes many of those who today in North America are defined as white oftentimes rail against what they call identity politics. Um, I'm not sure if your listeners who happen to be quite intelligent and literate Uh, are familiar with this bizarre concept which would suggest that Black Lives Matter is an example of so-called identity politics that needs to be shunned, whereas it's many ways it's like the thief yelling, stop thief, because there's no better example of identity politics than the construction of whiteness. What I mean is, is that you had these rather small European powers trying to control sprawling territory. Portugal, for example, uh, which has a contemporary population of 9 million, trying to control Brazil, larger than the United States from the Atlantic to the Pacific, with a contemporary population of 200 million. England, with a contemporary population of about 60 million, trying to control not only North America, a good deal of Africa, but also India, which has a contemporary population of 1.3 billion. So the United States, in some ways, grasped the nettle when it decides to move away from the religious conflicts that helped to dominate the early stages of settler colonialism, that is to say you get certain privileges in the Americas if you're Catholic, for example, by suggesting that no, it's going to leapfrog those religious conflicts of English versus Irish and English versus Scot and French versus British and German versus Pole and Russian versus German and Serb versus Croat and Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, etc. And magically, when all of these warring European ethnicities cross the Atlantic, magically, they're transmuted into this new identity politics, which is white, which helps to bolster the forces that are seeking to seize the land of the Native Americans and enslave the Africans. You need great numbers for that kind of cruel enterprise. And then a package of rights and liberties are accorded to them and denied to the rest of them. And therein, you begin to see the origins of the United States of America. But as it turns out, the creation of this new politics of an identity that was whiteness, based upon various European ethnicities that were warring on the shores of Europe, is not sufficient. And so even though I oftentimes use the term Euro-American as being equivalent to so-called white American, in some ways that's a misnomer because what happens as the U.S. project unfolds is that the doors of whiteness are open further to Lebanese Christians, for example. Think of Ralph Nader. Or even to Iranians. Uh, Think of the head of Uber, for example. But this is oftentimes interpreted as a certain kind of benevolence even though the not-too-hidden agenda is that it excludes the rest of us. But in some ways, it's a pragmatic construction that goes to the essence of settler colonialism 
which involves in the first place expropriation of land whereby you need goodly numbers of soldiers and settlers and the creation and construction of whiteness is the response to that particular dilemma and you can make a state step go a step further and say the so-called leap forward the United States makes with regard to a Bill of Rights too is a pragmatic response to this ultimate dilemma of settler colonialism which requires numbers in order to tame a continent and to enslave millions of Africans. Well, well, certainly now, when you consider the last few elections, when I think you've pointed out on this show many times that the plurality of white people who voted for the Republican candidate, even though those candidates were either at the time or ultimately spouting policies that would hurt them, you know, in terms of the larger working class, then you have more examples of this banding together under the umbrella of whiteness. And another way to look at that, and the example I've used, is the late stages of apartheid, when oftentimes the argument was put forward that sanctions against apartheid, for example, the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of 1986, one of the signal accomplishments of our movement, it was argued that it would really hurt the African majority. But the African majority, at least as spokespersons, would oftentimes respond that they were willing to absorb short-term pain. And of course, there was a question even if it would hurt them, but they were willing to absorb the purported short-term pain for long-term gain. And likewise, I think that for Trump voters, they're playing the long game. Uh, they may think in their own minds that there are, there are short-term pain, for example, work requirements for Medicaid. But if you're going to turn the clock back, it's going to be pain in the short term in order to get the long-term gain of returning to the period when their leader, Donald J. Trump, says that, quote, America, unquote, was great. Uh, that is to say, expropriating Native Americans and enslaving Africans. But now the agenda is much bigger. We're talking about expropriating the world on behalf of those defined as white. And... Uh, and throwing a military parade to, to perhaps uh, announce the beginning of the, <laughs> the new order, <laughs> whatever. It's crazy. But uh, I would like to think that this uh, plan, this demented and hard plan, is going to wind up on the ash heap of history. Uh, but then again, uh, I've been wrong before. The, the final point I would make is a special and particular message to those who had not been inducted into the halls of whiteness, particularly the black population. And that is to say that historically, as my previous remarks have suggested, the way that the black population was able to escape the dire fate that was intended for us was by lengthening the battlefield, by aligning with, for example, the Spanish against the British in Stono's Revolt in 1739 in colonial South Carolina. And then after the formation of the United States, aligning with the British against the Euro-American settlers. For example, August 1814, when the Negroes helped the British burn down Washington, D.C., sending President James Madison and his garrulous spouse Dolly fleeing into the streets one step ahead of the posse or aligning with the Mexicans against Washington, 
uh, for example, uh, with regard to the war against Mexico 1846-1848 or aligning with the independent Native American nations, such as the Seminoles in Florida against Washington in wars beginning circa 1820 and not concluding until the 1850s, aligning with Japan against Washington, which was the subject of my book, Facing the Rising Sun on Afro-Asian Solidarity, or aligning with Moscow and the socialist camp against Washington. But what's striking about our plight today in 2018 is that the mainstream leadership, the Congressional Black Caucus and NAACP, uh, have no clue, if you look at their record, as to how to develop a global strategy to confront our present plight against the Trump coalition. Even some of our nationalist friends don't seem to have a global project, even though, for example, uh, to cite one example amongst many, when the Turkish president, Erdogan, comes to Washington, he always makes a point to sup with uh, Muslims who happen to be of African descent, but that has not led to a kind of development of a global strategy that helped to rescue our people in previous centuries and is so sorely missing today in 2018. Well, that's something that we'll definitely keep discussing as we have in the past, and we'll see what develops here in 2018. I've been speaking to Gerald Horn, frequent contributor to On the Ground and Across the Pacifica Network, about his new book, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. My name is Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, and I'm honored to be the national co-chair with Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. That's right. Let's give it up for the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. This morning, all over the country, in 32 state capitals and here in the District of Columbia, our nation's capital, we are serving notice that we need a breakthrough, that we need a revolution of moral values, that we need to bring an end to systemic racism, poverty, militarism and the war economy, and ecological devastation. We need a poor people's campaign. We are DACA students, immigrant families on the brink of separation and deportation, homeless moms being attacked by the police and neighbors, families with poison water or no water at all, parents who are burying their children for the lack of health care kids trying to stay out of the juvenile injustice system, the elderly whose votes that they fought for are being suppressed once again. We are millennials who want justice for all, labor leaders who are fighting for unions for everyone, religious organizations and denominational leaders, doctors, lawyers, activists, construction workers, fast food workers, and all people of conscience who believe we need a moral revival in this land, that we need to stand as and with the poor to work for justice, love, 
and peace. Yes. So I was planning this morning on bringing a quote from the drum major instinct <laughs> before Dodge Ram <laughs> beat me to it. <laughs> you see, there are a lot of anniversaries taking place these days. Last week, we had a moment of silence for the two sanitation workers that were crushed 50 years ago in a garbage truck in Memphis. But the sad thing is, is that more than 14 people a day die due to unsafe working conditions. That, that low-wage workers and other workers are being paid poverty wages. And that systematic and systemic racism still runs rampant in this land. Saturday was the 50th anniversary of Reverend Dr. King meeting with the National Welfare Rights Organization, where he learned some about the programs and policies that became the basis for the moral agenda of the 68 campaign. But today, there are more homeless children than any time in this nation's history. There are more, 70% of poor people in this land are women and children. And that welfare rights grandmothers and, and mothers are still fighting to end poverty with the immoral agenda that folks were coming up with 50 years ago. Yeah. It was actually these welfare moms who introduced me to the Poor People's Campaign and they are still fighting and at various press conferences and actions throughout this country today. And then yesterday, in addition to being the Super Bowl, was the 50th anniversary of Reverend Dr. King preaching the Drum Major Instinct Sermon at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And as many people said last night and this morning on social media, Dodge Ram using that sermon to sell trucks and cars is absolutely inappropriate. In fact, if anyone bothered to hear the words of that sermon, Dr. King has a critique of the auto industry (laughs) exploiting people, exploiting their workers, and making people feel inadequate unless they buy their vehicles. (laughs) There is a lesson in that sermon for us today. It's a lesson about what is important in this world and what each of us must do to make it great. Today, we put our elected officials on notice because we have fewer voting protections than we did 52 years ago. We have 140 million poor or low-income people living in the United States. That's almost 50% of the U.S. population. Half of the kids living in this country are living in homes that do not have enough to feed them. And it's the richest country in the world. We have more people dying from pollution than any other cause. There are 4 million families without water this very morning. We spend significantly more money on the military than we do on education, and we do on healthcare, than we do on social programs. 
than we do on living wage jobs all combined. And our politicians, our corporations, Mm -hmm. even some of our religious leaders benefit from keeping us down, locking us up, underpaying underpaying us and making us fight each other. But they do not have the last word. We are rising up together. On Mother's Day, May 13th, a day that celebrates birth and life. And then for lasting for 40 days through June 21st, the summer solstice, a day that celebrates light. In states across the country, And in Washington, D.C., poor people and moral leaders and all people of conscience will engage in a massive nonviolent civil disobedience campaign. We need everyone to get involved. We need everyone to serve each other. Please, if you're following us online, get involved by going to poorpeoplescampaign.org. Join the moral revival taking place in our nation. Please join the Poor People's Campaign. You have been listening to the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, speaking outside the U.S. Capitol on February 5th. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Gerald Horn and Calvin Christian. The music we played this hour included Who's Illegal by Jaziri X, Feel by Kendrick Lamar, and Seasons by Mozzie, Sajava, and Reason on the Black Panther movie soundtrack. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Keep raising your voice. Thanks for tuning in. Peace. Yeah.